This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. Yesterday I flew down to sunny San Francisco where it rained the entire time, but fortunately I got a great interview with Rabble of Audio, which you will hear shortly. First I have two announcements. Number one is that this show has been very popular. I started hosting it on my web server a couple a week ago or so. And we were doing 30 gigabytes of transfer every day, which is about 1,000 downloads, which is very exciting, except that it was going to cost me $400 a month just to pay for all that bandwidth. So fortunately, Troy Davis of the Portland, Oregon Ruby Brigade and Paranode has donated bandwidth to host all the audio files, which is going to make it great for you to be able to download all this very quickly and saved me a huge bill. So thanks to Troy. If you are running a business and you need huge amounts of bandwidth in the manner of hundreds of gigabytes per day, talk to Troy. He's running a great business out there in Portland, Oregon. Number two, we have the Typo Theme Contest. I'm sure you all know about the Ruby on Rails powered Typo blog engine, which is in use all over the place. But there aren't many themes for it yet. So I put on a contest, got a lot of great sponsors who are putting out some good prizes, including a few just added in the last 24 hours. Site5.com hosting is going to be donating a brand new 15-inch PowerBook to the winner of the contest and a 12-inch iBook to the second place theme as determined by the judges. Also, we have the Pragmatic Programmers donating one copy of Agile Web Development with Rails. We have the Icon Factory donating a copy of Xscope and also of Icon Builder. Planet Argon is donating 10 blogging hosting packages when you're a blog hosting for the first 10 unique themes that are submitted and also their level 3 hosting for the winner of the contest. Got a copy of TextMate. Magnolia.com is donating an iPod Nano. And finally, Tables Turned is donating one year of podcast hosting. So lots of great stuff for the Typo theme contest. If you have Pixel Foo, fire up your graphic editor and come up with a good theme for Typo. Send it in. You can see all of that, all the details at typogarden.com So today we are interviewing Rabble of Odeo. Odeo was one of the first big Rails online apps to come out in back in June. There were a few others before that definitely, but they're a directory of podcasts. You can go on there, you can search for podcasts on all different topics, you can download them, you can subscribe, you can listen to them, and of course it's all written on Ruby on Rails. Rebel is the lead developer, and he is going to tell us all about the great kind of things that they're doing at Odeo. Slight disclaimer, because I wasn't able to identify the business end of their fancy unidirectional microphone, my voice sounds a little echoey and distant. Fortunately, Rabble knew what he was doing and comes in loud and clear, so... Enjoy this interview with Rabble of Odeo. I've, uh, I've been working on the, the Rails app for Odeo since December 
of 2004, back with uh, Rails 0 0.86. Wow. And some of our code reflects that <laughs> legacy. And uh, now we have four people who are doing full-time Rails development and a couple other people who are working part-time and, and doing other parts of our application because we have media processing and, and other, other applications. Now, back in December, barely anybody had any real-life experience with Rails. Were you part of the team that decided to use Rails to develop Odeo, or was that already decided before you came onto the team? That was a possibility when I came onto the team. Okay. When uh, Evan Williams and Noah were looking at starting Odeo, they, they had two options. One was to go for the uh, you know, a standard PHP app, um, and the other was to look at this new framework, which is Ruby on Rails. Blogger, which was Evan Williams' previous project, uh, has a backend in Java. So he knew he didn't want to do that. And they thought Rails was pretty cool, but they weren't sure they could find developers. So when I came on board, I was like, you know, I'll either do it in Rails or I, I don't want the project. And uh, we, we hit it off and we started working and started developing. And, it, and it's, been, it's been great. There's, there's some issues, but it's been great. On the whole, it's much better than anything else out there. We got lucky when, uh, when we decided to do it, we didn't know Rails was going to become so popular. I knew it was amazing and cool and I loved the direction it was going in, but none of us knew, okay, well, this is going to be a major thing. There's going to be books about it. There's going to be um, you know, intense interest. It's going to be the keynote at OSCON. I mean, that kind of attention wasn't something we knew that would be drawn into the Rails community, and it's really been just wonderful. So it was kind of risky for you to do it, and yet you weren't expecting it to become huge, so you had enough confidence to go forward with it anyway. Yeah, it was risky, and we faced some bugs, and there's always been this sort of attitude around the office that if there's ever a problem with Rails, we either decide, well, does it need to be fixed now, or can we just wait two months? Because often we've had to build workarounds for the framework, and then, you know, three weeks later, a month later, the framework gets adjusted and updated, and, and our problems go away. I was going to ask about that with Rails 1.0 is coming out soon, and of course, you've been around, or you launched, I think, back in June. Yep. So, what kind of things. Did you do to plan for that? Did you say we're going to stick with this particular revision? Uh, you know, wait. I guess you said wait two months. But did you do you test new versions first and see hey, is it worth going for an hour? We'll wait till the the final thing. How do you make those kinds of decisions? We we've been trying to be patient. So we we waited about three weeks for Rails zero thirteen before we decided to jump over and move our servers up. It's, it's not been too easy to maintain a parallel development environment. We, we tried it for a while where you'd have a version of our code that worked on the, the latest version of Rails and your version of our code worked on a more stable release. And because of especially bugs in the way Gems did version lookups, it didn't work. That, that the first you could define all the first level gems of only views this version, but then all the gems referred to each other and loaded up the most recent version. And so 
we haven't been able to sort of fulfill the promise of gems, which is, you know, you can, you can lock things at a specific version and then have another version of the library installed. That hasn't worked out for us. So we've basically sort of bit our tongues as long as we could until people got too excited and someone upgraded their box. And then we had to upgrade the code base. And then we go through a process of upgrading the site. So this time, this week, we've been upgrading to Rails 1.0. With the, the second release candidate that's come out, we feel more stable about it. Um, we want to get access to the new features. It bothered, you know, there's, there's workarounds you have to do for the older versions that you don't have to do for the new stuff. And so we've been really excited about it, so we've been in the process of upgrading right now. And you mentioned earlier that, of course, you've had to fix different bugs that were in Rails, you fixed them yourself, and then the new versions fix those bugs, and you kind of, kind of synchronize that, figure out how you're going to deal with your fixes and then the new features in Rails, how do you arrange that? Absolutely. It's been difficult. Um, the, the place we've extended the most is we're using two things. We're using the Robot Co-op's memcache libraries, which I'm not sure they've released out into the public yet, but they have nice memcache libraries for session caching, and also we're looking at their uh, the active record and caching libraries. So we use those memcache stuff, which is, which we had to upgrade to work with Rails 1.0 because the robot co-op waits even longer than we do before upgrading their sites. And then we did a fair amount of, of, of caching hacks. So we have a whole set of libraries that change the way Rails does action caching because we do action caching and then we do another layer where we take things out of the session to update all sorts of data. So we have a cache page, which is the main ODO listen page, and then we have the status for, are you subscribed to these things, are you not? And what is your username? And then we, so we have a regular expression which passes back over that cache page. And so that kind of stuff was all custom extensions into Rails, and some of that broke. So we've had to fix that. The other thing is um, we use the robot co-op syslogger, and the syslogger is um, a really nice tool that's out there, and there's a gem for it, but the gem's not updated for Rails 1.0 yet. And Rails 1.0 includes some new logger commands, and they change the way the logger command works so that the levels aren't numbers anymore, but the levels are, are symbols, okay. which makes sense, but syslogger doesn't do that. And the new Rails has logger.add, which doesn't, syslogger doesn't support because we're using this, this alternate logger. For production sites, syslogger is really important because you can take all your past logs and you know exactly the render times over a large period of time. It's much better for analyzing large amounts of logs. So you can find out which pages do too much in your database, which pages take too long to render. So those have been the primary issues that we've had is you know places where we did things you weren't probably supposed to do because we needed it for scalability or we needed it for, for sort of reliability stuff and then you have to readjust everything. Not to say Ruby makes it all much easier. I mean if we were trying to do this in any other language or with the exception of maybe you know JavaScript or, or Smalltalk uh -huh. we wouldn't be able to have opened up the existing libraries and added methods to them without having forked 
And so the fact that we can maintain stuff and it's, it's a relatively minor update to update our stuff where we, we're maintaining our patches has been wonderful. Yeah, that's true. Um, because Rails itself patches Ruby, but then we on top of it patch the Rails patches to Ruby. So we've opened up Array and String and Action Controller and the Dispatcher, all these different things wow. to provide functionality we wanted. And we've been... Uh, working with uh, Florian Weber and he's one of the Rails committers and so we have him do most of the stuff where if we develop a hack that we need, we have him do the work to sort of put it back in in Rails for the next release. So the core people here in the office, we haven't done too much committing back to Rails but we have one guy, Florian, on the team and he's in Hamburg who takes our hacks and rolls them back into the next release of Rails. So he's the one who's most motivated to get us up and going with the latest releases because he, he gets frustrated at using older versions of Rails. Yeah, well, that's great because then you can fix the things you need to and also have some level of confidence that it's going to be rolled into future Rails versions and you're not going to always have to be patching it. It'll be part of the real thing. Absolutely. Another example of where we had to do that was... Um, we do a lot of has and belongs to many relationships. Fairly, fairly central to our data model. And there was no way to do callbacks on has and belongs to many relationships. Because okay. there was no model there on the relationship where you could do the callbacks. So we had Florian add that. And now most Rails apps don't need callbacks on has and belongs to many relationships. But for us, it was vitally important. So that kind of more advanced functionality is, is really nice to see Rails incorporating. I'm really excited by the plugin architecture because up until now, you have had this great idea of mix-ins. You know, access taggable, access list, and they've either been sort of separate, sort of disconnected, Libraries, or they've been rolled into Rails core. And they, they shouldn't be either one. We, we need that plugin architecture, and I really like the balance that's been achieved with the new plugin architecture. And some people have picked it up pretty quickly. I know TechnoWeenie online has had a few of those different things. X's version, X's Paranoid, that would do a soft delete, and, yeah. and he converted those to plugins right away, and they're pretty useful. Yeah, it's clearly it's, it, it's, it's the right balance for the plugins because they they provide some encapsulation and people are able to put their code into them easily. There's not a, a huge learning curve. How about new features of Rails? Definitely since June, we've got migrations, we've got switch tower, might have even used some extra visual effects and things. On your side, I like the balance of, ooh, wow, you know, type features but it doesn't really get in your way. It helps you out. It makes it easier. And it's new things that browsers couldn't do one, three, five years ago. Yep. And yet it gets out of your way. It helps you do things easier. Do you have somebody who's researching those new kinds of things that are built into Rails? Or how do you, how do you decide to implement new features like that? Well, we're on all the mailing lists. So we're following the mailing lists. We follow the IRC channels. Um, so we sort of keep track of what's happening. We're, we're interested in Gage, 
which is the, the new thing that, that David's excited about, which is the, the real-time performance monitoring for Rails. Okay, I didn't look much into that. And uh, specifically, we use, we use Nagios for our servers, so we're trying to figure out where Gage fits. We don't want to encourage it to replace Nagios or Munin, but some real-time stats stuff would be really nice. We haven't started using Switch Tower, but we're really excited about it. Um, and migrations has been wonderful for a bigger team. Migrations was a real headache before they got introduced. Sure. And uh, for us, where we have we have working installs on half a dozen developer boxes, then a staging server, and then live servers, where we have four web front end web servers running Rails as a web app, and then the same app installed on a bunch more servers for back-end stuff. Okay. So given that the, the diversity of different systems and different databases we have, having something like migrations has been really helpful. Um, so we like it. We also run CIA, which is the, the continuous integration application, and that's been really nice for cutting down on, on release cycles. We do uh, very short release cycles. I know that, that the robot co-op, for example, they'll do a release every couple weeks. Whereas for us, it's been a long time since a release if we go two days. So right now, we're really feeling the pain of the Rails 1.0 upgrade because we haven't done a release since yesterday morning. So we're really trying to take that, that sort of agile, continuous release methodology and push its edge. You know, yeah. can, can we have a release after every commit? Now, we may not do that, but, but we're playing with the idea to see if it's possible. So that the code never ends up in a broken state. A lot has been written in the last couple of weeks about different testing methods, having a separate server that you access through DRB that then runs your tests, or I was looking at something that Eric Kotal of 43 of Robot Co had done where you would just look at, through and check to see which files changed and then it would test those concurrently even while you're writing the code. Do you do anything like that or how do you get through the challenge of having a whole bunch of comprehensive tests that then take 30 minutes to run the whole suite? Well, we've been using transactional fixtures for a long time already. Okay. And that's technically a new thing, I think in Rails 1.0.014, but we, we needed it a while ago. And it, it cut sort of 75% of the time down on our test suite. So that's been really important for us. Even then, our tests take too long. It takes about five minutes and we have about 600 tests and thousands of assertions. And so it takes us a while to run the full suite. We have a few things. One, we, we run a lot of individual tests in our development. We also just, you know, you either run the individual test or you run the, the, the test files. So you run all the tests through that. Rerun rake takes about four or five minutes. And we have fast boxes. So that's really too much. The high priority for us is to make tests run faster. So we're looking at DRB. So we have, you know, we're, we're playing with sort of plugins to text mate 
So you can click on a method and you can run the, if, if you're in the test, you can run the test from the method. Okay. Or run the whole tests. And so that, so the, yeah, the DRV model, the, the whole Rails environment is up and running. And you connect to it and run the tests. Because a significant portion of the time for the tests is the loading of the Rails environment. Once you've got the transactional fixtures. So that's, a, that's an important next step. Once we go to switch tower, um, we're using um, Tobias's old deploy script right now. Okay. So we do a subversion export on each server and then run all the tests for it and then restart everything. And that's proving to be way too slow for us. Okay. So with switch tower, we're going to look at doing a subversion export and then r-syncing the files around, restarting the servers, or potentially running, going to the point where we even have diskless front-end web servers that do net boots, and then do all the logging back over the network. Um, because if you have a bug up on a site and you've got five servers, you, you want to you get it out there fast. You don't want to spend 45 minutes for a deploy. That's very Java-like, and it, it pains us a lot to have a 45-minute deploy process. Is there a target? You're trying to get it to 20 minutes, 15, 5 minutes? Yeah, five, 5 minutes would be nice. 5 or 10 minutes. Um, and it's a continuous process. We're never going to be done optimizing our tests and making them faster because we're always adding more tests. We just recently hired a QA guy, and he's a very flexible, creative, outside-the-box QA guy. And we got him from the Dreamweaver team over at Macromedia. And so at first he's been like, well, I want to test everything. And we're like, well, that's fine. You can test everything. But uh, we're still going to release five times a day. <laughs> and one of the processes we're doing is having him write the test plans and then write them into code. So we have our QA guy building test suites. We're also looking at using one of the um, in-browser tests. You can do more acceptance like tests. Yeah. yeah. There's one from ThoughtWorks. We want to try that, but we're not doing anything with that yet. But testing testing is what makes, for me, Rails really different than other web application frameworks. It makes it really... Testing is the most obvious thing to do. I add features to Odeo, often without ever opening a web browser. Wow. And they'll be user-facing features. And I'll, I'll add them, and I'll edit the HTML, and I, I know what the HTML is going to look like, and I, I edit everything else, and I, I put it together, and then just, you know, send it on. Commit it. And there's, there's test coverage. So, you know, it works out really well. We, we, don't, we don't have a straight sysadmin. Okay. We've got a Rails developer who does more, sys, more of the sysadmin stuff. And we've got Rails developers who do more of the, the middleware main Rails stuff, and we've got Rails developers who do more of the front-end JavaScript interactivity stuff. So, HTML stuff. So we don't have anyone who's like, I'm just the sysadmin. Or just a pure graphic designer or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, that seems important. I mean, just in general, being pretty well-rounded, having a variety of skills, and it sounds like you're maximizing that, then people... Even if they are just doing graphics, they still have an idea of what the back end is going to be like and how it's yep. all going to work together. Um, Odeo is now 14 people. Okay. So we're growing very quickly. And a lot of those are developers. Um, about half are sort of technical capacity folks. And up until eight or nine people, everyone had subversion access. Wow. And as we've grown, there's more people who 
aren't even in a position where they're going to be modifying things on the site. So it hasn't continued. But it was really nice to know that we could give the guy doing customer support or anyone else access so that if they want to make changes in the views, they could. And people did. The views are very accessible. It's one of the things that sort of surprised me, um, which shouldn't, because it looks very much like PHP. And lots of people can just sort of figure out how to muddle their way through PHP. And in the same way, lots of people who don't really feel themselves as programmers are able to make their way through adding stuff and modifying the views. Now, some of us go back in and we, we refactor what they produce, but they're able to produce usable code and modify the site directly on their own without having to go through the engineers, the main programmers, which has been really nice. And I think it's a major plus. You know, it reflects where Rails has come from. Rails has come from a design house where the designers needed to be able to modify the templates themselves. Uh-huh. And they need to be able to understand it even though they didn't aren't programmers. So what kind of hardware do you run off? You said, of course, developers have pretty fast machines and then you have four web servers. Sure, I'll, I'll give you a, an overview of, of what our system looks like. Our development boxes are a dual processor G5s with two gigs of RAM and... Almost everyone in the office uses Macs. The one guy who does Flash development uses a PC because there's problems with the Macromedia Flash authoring tools on Mac. But everyone else has a Mac. Um, and we've even gotten the, the, uh, the Flash guy, Ray, to buy a Mac laptop. He bought himself a PowerBook. Is that the one sitting out on the table right now? Yeah. And uh, so... We, we developed to make it work on Macs. Um, we have a, a staging server, which is a, a full sort of limited replication of the live site at the Colo here at the office. And that's a, an NFS, NFS file server, a front-end web server, a database server, a Flashcom server, and a media processing server. So the minimal system to run the Odeo site is five servers. And one of those is the web server running Rails. The rest of them are all the other parts. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Yes. There's a lot of feed polling and feed parsing going on behind the scenes. We go and we poll and we parse every MP3 that's listed in our directory to determine its length, determine it's actually an MP3. It's not a Trojan horse or a virus or something like that. And then we have a separate database server. Flashcom is an app we have to run on the server for the studio to work, and that has to run on Red Hat. All of our other servers are Debian Sarge, and we don't have the exact same hardware in our staging environment as we do in our, our colo. It would be ideal. Our, our boxes for most things are Dell you know, they're, I don't know, 2.5 gigahertz boxes with 1 to th- 3 gigs of RAM each. Our media processing are, um, I believe, HP Opterons, 64-bit, because they process things a lot faster. Okay. And those are optimized. But other than that, it's just off-the-shelf hardware that we got from Dell. You know, nice hardware, but just what you can find on the Dell site. And we're trying to set it up to scale linearly so you can have... You know, you have a bunch of web servers, and then you have file servers, and you have different different sort of setup. 
the one thing we do which is not sort of your standard Linux hardware is we've got um, a specialized file server. We looked because we're going to do a lot of media stuff. I mean, you already know, just looking at your downloads, that you do a lot. And we host a lot, and we're planning on hosting a lot more. So we've got a 9-terabyte disk array. And rather than using a NAS or a SAMS, which, which can be very expensive, and have proper RAID, what we do is we're using um, MogulFS, okay. which is the file system in Perl developed for LiveJournal. And we haven't released it yet, but we have a port of the MogulSF client library, in Ruby. Blaine, who, who works here, did the port in an evening. <laughs> and the, you know, MogulSF is fairly well-designed, object-oriented Perl. But it still cut out a huge percentage of the lines of code because all the sort of stretching and, and contortions you have to do to make nice object-oriented Perl, you don't have to do in Ruby. So a huge number of the lines and sort of the backwardness and making it all work uh, for the Perl client library, you don't have to do. So we'll definitely be releasing the Ruby MogulFS client libraries. Now, the, the server is still that manages the files will still be in Ruby. but So we use that to uh, manage files in and out. And uh, we're still using Apache 1.3. We're planning on switching to Lighty. But okay. we haven't done it yet. One, because we haven't seen a need. You know, we're, we're not seeing a huge amount of traffic that we can't handle. Sometimes we get up to, you know, 50 requests a second, but it's not that much. That's impressive. Do you have, well, like I say, we did, you know, on this, for my server on the podcast, we did 30 gigabytes a day, but I think we're number 80 or something on your rankings. Yeah. And we're not Al Franken. Do you have any idea of how much data is transferred through or because of your site? Like if I go and if I listen through my web browser to the Al Franken show, you're not actually serving yeah, that up. Yeah, we're just, just streaming it. We're just, yeah, we just route you through to just streaming from their site. We estimate based on looking at iTunes numbers and looking at the numbers we've gotten released from different podcasters that the whole podcasting community does somewhere between 6 and 10 terabytes of traffic a day. Okay. That's our best guess. No one really knows. We do, I don't know, at most tens of megabytes a second. I think it's impressive that you guys have done all the stuff that you have, and it's great that you're contributing that back into the Rails community. A lot of people, including myself, are benefiting from that, and excited to see what's happening. Yeah, I want to say one other thing is, is we're, we're looking for more Rails developers. We're, we're, you know, we're a young company. We have stock options. We've got a nice office. Um, we're offering competitive salaries. And we're, you know, if you're not based in the Bay Area and you have you know, an attractive resume and you've done interesting work, we'll fly you out to San Francisco and, to do an interview. And um, So please send in those applications.
Igual que morimos.